I got it turned on there. I got to put on my nice jacket since I'm going to be on the video. <laughs> okay, no looking ahead on what the lesson is about today. <laughs> Nobody can see it. Yeah, if you can't see it, just scoot up <laughs> so that you can read it there. Today we're going to be going to the book of Leviticus, if you want to turn there to the first chapter and first verse, and what this lesson will be is a, it's an overview of the sacrifices in the first seven chapters. We won't be able to go into every detail and implication of those sacrifices, but I'll try to lay out enough for you that You'll understand it, and as you read through your Bible, you go, ah, that's that thing right there. I get it now. There's a lot of different types of groups that are gathered to worship and sacrifice to the Lord today in different ways, but they're not all doing exactly the same thing, though it might kind of look the same in that people are gathered together. So you might think of the difference between our gathering and the Roman Catholic Church. There's similarities. There's people there. There's music. There's the Bible. And then there's a guy who talks and says stuff. But what's happening there is very different than what is happening here in the substance of it. You have one group that they're gathering together to earn a wage. You know, we did this thing for God and now he owes this to us but the other group is just enjoying a gift that God has given them. One group is gathering together to disperse a duty to God, while the other is just delighted to give God the best that they have because they realize that God has given them so many gifts, and they just want to give something back to him. They're not gathering to try to earn something from God, but to enjoy God, to enjoy what he has provided, and to share that with one another as they worship together. That's what the sacrifices are about in Leviticus. And during this time in history for people to carry out the kind of sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that are so foreign to us was a very normal sort of thing to do. Just like you know, I brought up the example, people are gathering together in buildings and there's music and there's a guy that talks. Well, back, I mean, going all the way back in history to where sacrifices and worship began goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. And you see two different kinds of worshipers. You know, you see Cain coming and 
thinking he can modify the worship and give whatever he wants to God and God just has to accept it. That he could define the terms of worship. Whereas Abel wanted to bring the best. He wanted to bring what he knew God wanted, which was you know, the born of his flock. I got cool like distortion effects on my voice there. All right. <laughs> And you think going through scripture, you see people worshiping through sacrifices. You know, after Noah's delivered after the, the flood, he gives a burnt offering, which is going to be the first offering that we talk about. And it was to show his dedication to the Lord because he had been delivered. And that's an important thing to recognize that you don't, you don't give the burnt offering to God because you hope that he will deliver you, but because he has delivered you. Same thing happens with Abraham and his building of altars and offering burnt sacrifices, the various people who came from his family afterwards. And as we come closer to Le Leviticus, you'll remember Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, he says, let us go out that we may sacrifice. And the, nobody said, well, that's weird to sacrifice animals. You guys are creepy. It's like, that's just a very normal sort of thing that people did in their worship then. But now we're at the point where now they've gone out and they're going to be offering the sacrifices, but they're not to be doing it according to how they understood the sacrifices or how everybody else around them offered sacrifices, but by how God defined the sacrifices and his purpose and intent with that. You'll likely remember from last week how we talked about Israel's worship was a model that taught how salvation worked. So last week I had this, I'll explain my drawing because it's crude. <laughs> that, uh, this, this is the tabernacle and we have you know, the wash basin, the altar of burnt offering. And this, this thing here is supposed to be a priest. This is new to our picture this time. But just so you know, this symbol is the priest, okay? Don't look at me like that. It's not that bad. And then you have the whole courtyard here, and there's the, the screened fence, and then outside here's all of Israel. You know, they're the little dots out here. And we talked about how this was a gospel tract. You know, the tabernacle teaching, God is holy, and then man is outside of God's presence. They're outside of dwelling with him. They're outside of this thing that was a model of Eden. So you see, God is holy, man is sinful, and that's what separates him. Sin separates man from God. But God in his grace comes to dwell among man. Uh, his glory changes everything about this relationship by what happens right here in the middle. Which in the middle what we've seen is that there's mediation that happens. There's atonement. And that's what brings sinful man to holy God. And at this point in scripture, God has shown the Israelites that he will forgive and uh, that's part of his character and will. That as he revealed his glory to Moses, he said he's a God who forgives, but he'll by no means clear the guilty. So this raises this qu the question, well, how does that work? I mean, how can he justly forgive somebody? Like, you know, if they deserve to be punished, how, how can he forgive them? And for now, he says, just believe me that it's true. I'll explain it later. But... 
what's happening in this moment as we come to the beginning of Leviticus is that the Israelites were celebrating the fact that God had been gracious to them. He didn't kill all of them. And so they thought, you know what, let's worship him, but let's not do the molten calf thing this time. Let's do it on his terms. Let's not just say, oh, well, we, we know feast. You know, when a God wants a feast, he wants this sort of thing. I says, no, 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 not the kind of feast that you think of or that everybody else does. You do the feast the way that I tell you to. But now they get that. And they're thankful for the grace that God has shown them because he's renewed the relationship with them. You know, they didn't do anything to get God to do that, but he's done that and they recognize we don't deserve this. This is amazing. And so they say, let's give them our best. Let's give them the, the best supplies we have, the best service, to, you know, so much to the point that Moses says, tell everybody to stop bringing stuff. We have too much stuff. The people are eager to, to honor God, to, to give thanks to him, and they want to be a part of it with a willing heart, which is, this is who God asked to come and contribute to the building of the tabernacle, is people with a willing heart. And earlier on when we got the tabernacle instructions in Exodus, God says, you know, you will build the tabernacle which is, you know, the history kind of goes on and everything happens with the molten calf. You just think, I don't know if they're going to build it or not. But God said they were going to build it, but how is that going to happen? And then you start reading about there were these men in whom God placed his spirit. So it's like, well, what's going to fuel making all this stuff happen? God puts his spirit inside of people and he empowers them to do exactly what he commanded them to do. And so people are enjoying this relationship with God and they want to know how to to keep enjoying it how do you maintain this rela relationship how do you enjoy it because they recognize we the way that we become holy also has to be holy you know the way that we worship God can't be something that we come up with but it has to be what he has come up with we can't just worship him however we think in our own minds so at this point in scripture, now God graciously gives them the instructions on, you know, how do you have fellowship with them? How do you enjoy God's presence? How do you enjoy who God is and what he does? Well, the way that a person becomes holy has to be holy. And so God teaches them through five sacrifices. And these sacrifices are for these believers who have recognized God has graciously redeemed them. And they say, you know, we want to say thank you to God, but what kind of thank you cards does he like? And so they find out. And as they're giving, you know, thanks to him, also built into these sacrifices as a way for them to do it in remembrance of him, to remember the most amazing thing that has ever happened to them, which is God delivering them. Now, you can hear how that relates to, you know, our fellowship when we celebrate the Lord's table together, when we have a fellowship meal together. You know, we, we come dedicated to bring our Instapot and stuff to, to that because God has been gracious to us. You know, it's like God has given me 12 ingredients to make a soup or a casserole in this thing. And you want, you want to bring your best to share with others because God has been gracious to you. But in, in doing that, you know, in participating in the Lord's table, we're also doing it in remembrance of him. 
you know, what he's done for us, and that's what cultivates that heart that wants to have that sort of fellowship with others so we can celebrate and enjoy what he's done in our lives together. But when it comes to how we worship God, just like we can't decide, you know, how, how the, Lord table, the Lord's table works or communion works. You know, God tells us and we seek to honor his word. But Israel hadn't gotten that word on how to set the table for fellowship. And so God gives them a word. And you see that in the first two verses in Leviticus, if you'll join me there. It says, you know, amidst Israel giving their, their best out of gratitude to God and wanting to know how they could keep doing that. It says, then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man from among you brings an offering near to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall bring it near a mill without blemish. He shall bring it near to the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before Yahweh. Now, how is it that you enjoy God's presence? Well, it's, you bring him the, the offering that he desires. You follow what his word says. And here our salvation theology is continuing to uh, develop, which I've started to write out here. We can see there, as we went through Exodus, we saw that in his salvation, he both brings destruction and deliverance. So you think about him, uh, the destroying plagues in Egypt and destroying their enemies while also delivering them out from their enemies. He says this is, salvation isn't only deliverance. It's not uh, an escape, but it's destroying all of your old enemies, all of your old life, and then delivering you to belong to him and to a new way of life. And then the new piece that we're getting here in Leviticus is dedication. He brings us in dedication to him. And that's what this burnt offering is about primarily. Because you see what happens is the Israelite worshiper who's you know, even just outside of the fence, they're not even brought in to have any sort of fellowship until they come with this burnt offering that's showing that you know, they're dedicated to the Lord because he has delivered them. You know, they're not trying to move toward him to be delivered, but they're being brought there because he has delivered them. And, it's a, and you've heard that phrase that you'll hear throughout this section of uh, coming near to Yahweh. You know, instead of going out further east, you're moving west and toward the tabernacle. But what happens with this offering is you see the worshiper comes inside the courtyard and now they're at the altar. Now, it's important to continue to remember that this, this model here doesn't save anybody. Uh, just doing the stuff that God had gave them as a teaching tool wouldn't save them. You know, bringing the burnt offering to the altar, God wouldn't say, okay, now your sins are gone because the animal died. He's like, no, the, the first thing that happened was God delivered them first and then they came in dedication 
to, to worship him. You might remember how we talked about the Mosaic Covenant is that the, the only thing that it does is instruct. It just teaches. You know, it's a teacher, it's not a savior. Uh, it's, it's a guide to salvation, but not the thing that accomplishes salvation. It just shows them how salvation works. So in a way, it's like, you know, to get on uh, the railroad that leads to God's rest and to be able to ride that train, the Mosaic Covenant is the, you know, the tour guide that says, well, th the way that you do it is you have to get a ticket, but all he has is this model ticket booth. He's like, well, it's a ticket booth. A ticket booth looks like this, and you come up to it, and you got to get a ticket, and that's how you're able to ride. But like, I, can't get, I can't get a ticket to ride out of the model. It's like, exactly. <laughs> it's just meant to, to teach you that you need a ticket to ride. That's it, but you can't actually get tickets out of it. I would try to draw all that, but I'm not that good at drawing. You know, I just have to picture it in your mind. So the sacrifices in the model, they're, they're meant to teach how salvation works, but they're not the work of salvation. Now, when it comes to Israel's worship and us using that word holy, you know, I've said the, the main point of these sacrifices is to communicate that the way you become holy must be holy. Now, what does that mean? What does that word holy mean? Who wants to take a stab at giving an answer? Yeah, set apart. You think about that, so has the idea of, you know, something's cut off from something else and it's separate. You know, we do this when we're cooking. You know, you take a carrot and you cut off a piece and it's set apart never to return back to that carrot again, but to be thrown into the skillet and cooked into something else to be shared with other people. Yeah. You like carrots early in the morning? All right. <laughs> that's, that's part of the idea of holiness that you're seeing here. And you know within Leviticus, and as Peter comes back to talk about this idea, says you're to be holy because God is holy. I was like, well, what does that mean that God is holy? It's, well, he's set apart from everything that he's unique. There's nothing like him. Uh, he's in a category of his own, which means your worship of him has to be like that also. It has to be unique. Uh, you don't treat anything else like him. You don't do anything else like that. Uh, it's unique, it's special, it's in a category of its own. And as Israel would worship their holy God in a holy way, you know, this was to be seen by the world around them. As they were walking through the wilderness and different nations could see them in this small land from the hills to see that you know, their, their worship is different than ours. Like, we offer sacrifices so that our God will come down and do something like show up as a cool cloud or a pillar of fire or something like that. But they see those guys, it's different. You know, the cloud and the fire thing shows up first and then they come and give offerings. So they say, those guys are backwards from us. You know, what's going on over there? And then they would, you know, eventually they come across an Israelite and they say, hey, we just came out here because we're curious. You know, why do you guys not eat pigs? Pigs are good. And Israel would explain, because our God is holy. We don't worship like you, God, like you guys worship because we don't worship a God where we're trying to bring him down. And we worship a God who has brought us up and he has taught us to worship 
in this way to, to honor what he has done. Now this burnt offering here is, he would look through this text. If you look at verse nine, you know, I had mentioned that you know, the, the Israelites weren't people who read books. These were oppressed slaves who were illiterate. They didn't know how to read, so they were hearing this message. So which cues us into the way that a point was emphasized was by, it got said over and over and over. So when you read this, you wanna look at, well, where's the repetition? Because the point that's trying to be emphasized is the stuff that's said the most. So at the end of verse nine, you see it says, it's an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. End of verse 13, it's an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. End of verse 17, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. It's like, well, how do we, how do we give the God who's a pillar of fire, you know, the, the thing that, that unites our fellowship to say thank you that you're, you're here with us? I mean, what's the thing that, that he, he wants to smell out of this? You know, what's the thing that's pleasing to him? He says, well, this, this burnt offering and how it's done, uh, this, this is that sort of thing. And at the, ver at the end of verse three that we read earlier, we, we read that he may be accepted before Yahweh. Now, one of the things that I want you to see in that terminology is that it's the worshiper who's accepted by, by Yahweh. The worshiper doesn't come up to the altar and say, well, Yahweh, I just want you to know that I have accepted you into my heart. Uh, you have met my terms and conditions for being my personal de deity, and I think you're, you're fit for the job. I'll hire you. He's like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that, that way. Rather, you know, God makes the terms. You come to him on uh, his terms of repentance and faith in him. Which helps us to understand that word atonement, which we read in verse four. It says of the worshiper, he shall lay his hand on the, the head of the, the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Now, we tend, when we think of atonement, we think of, Jesus dying for our sins, but we don't wanna, that's a true concept with an atonement, but it means more than that. So this idea of atonement, the, the person isn't somehow mystically getting their sins to come out of their body and through their hand into the animal, but what they're showing is they make an association with the animal. You know, they're making an association that says, God, I believe that something will die in my place so that the forgiveness that you've promised will be a just forgiveness. But you see, the, the Israelite worship isn't looking back and seeing that their, their sins were nailed to the cross, but they're looking forward and seeing that they will be forgiven through a substitutionary atonement that happens in the future. So in putting their, their hand on the head of the animal, they're saying, I associate with this animal that I deserve to die, but something can die in my place, and that's how God's salvation works. Within that word atonement, why, why this word was chosen in English translation is because of, you think of the parts of the word, it says at one meant. You know, it's a way to show that you're at one with God. You're not separated, but you've been brought together through this. You've been brought together to be dedicated to him because you've been 
delivered by him. So the worshiper comes with a willing heart. They come voluntarily. And as you think about this, which, which comes first? As we've mentioned, does, does the deliverance of the worshiper come first or their dedication? Yeah, it's always the deliverance. You, know, you, don't, you, you don't dedicate to yourself to God so that he will deliver you. But you kind of say, oh, he has delivered. Like, I'm not in Egypt. Pharaoh's not my master anymore. God's my master. I'm, I'm, I'm dedicated because he brought me here. I didn't even know it was the best thing for me. Uh, I told him that I thought he brought me out here to kill me. But that's not why he brought me here. He brought me out here to give me life. But the false worship of the nations around them was different in that they were always trying to get the gods to respond to them, to do something for them. And Israel's worship was different in that God came to them first and then they sacrificed as a way to say thank you to God that he had delivered them. And as you see that, you know, the worshiper comes and brings an offering, what is it that you think that God is ultimately interested in? Is God interested in the offering or is he interested in the offerer? Right? You get this from Psalm 40. And just write that down in your notes. Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. It says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. You see, you know, God didn't say barbecue because I like barbecue. He says, That's not what I wanted. He says, My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my inner being. And you see that? It's like, well, why are the offerings? Because God's interested in the offerer. And the offerer's like, well, I want to know how to say thank you. God says, do this. Bring this offering. And he says, that's what I want to do. I want to do whatever your will is, God. I want to do that because I've been changed from the inside out. You know, you've changed me with your spirit from my inner being. You can think all of it. We understand log splitters around here. And we don't have log splitters around because we, they look useful. Yeah, well, that's a nice machine. It, it, it looks useful. I'm glad I have it. But it's one thing to, to have a log splitter that looks good and another one that works. If it doesn't work, we think that thing stinks. But when the log splitter works because it has the fuel in it and it starts working, the, the delight isn't, wow, I can smell exhaust now. This is amazing. Like, I've been wanting to do this all day. Let's just stand here and enjoy it, everybody. But what, what you delight in is now you and the machine are joined and working together. Things are, we're moving along. Like we can't, the purpose of being out here in these trees is splitting firewood. And now that this is happening, you, you, you delight in the fact that the log splitter is working and you're working together. Now log splitters are different than people, so the analogy falls apart. But, you know, that's the idea. God, God has a work that he's doing in the world and he delights in us being joined in it, getting to be a part of it. So Christians are like log splitters. You just remember that next time you're splitting. 
some firewood. Chapter 2 tells us about the grain offering. And with this grain offering, let's read, I'll read the first two verses here. Now when anyone brings near a, a grain offering as an offering to Yahweh, his offering shall be of fine flour and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. Okay, now look what has happened in thinking about, you know, the model of their worship. You know, first, you know, the worshiper comes in, they have an offering at the altar, a burnt offering, but now they're also bringing it. Aaron, the sons, the priests, this is the grain offering. So it's like, there's your dedication because of deliverance, and there's this thanksgiving, but now other people are involved in the thanksgiving. You're like, guys, this is awesome. Let's make frankincense pancakes together. Yeah, the, there's this idea. I, I have no idea what that tastes like or where you can get frankincense. But you see that there's this, there's this fellowship that's beginning to happen. But right now somebody's missing out of the fellowship. But it's, things are moving near to Yahweh. They're going toward him and everything's being brought together in this Grain offering helps to forward that. Continuing in verse 2, it says, And he shall take from it his handful of fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar. So you see that that's not, you know, do this so that God will save you, but it's in remembrance that he did deliver you. It's a memorial meal. It says, and also, you know, you have this repeated phrase again, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Yahweh. This is, a, this is what God enjoys, and he wants to bring you into enjoying what he enjoys and everybody enjoying this together. And those words get echoed throughout this passage of a memorial offering, an offering by fire to Yahweh here, and all of it's a way to, to say thanks together what you can see what's happening here is uh, it, it's it's a fellowship meal but it's it's not just a personal salvation it's a corporate salvation god doesn't just save a, a, an individual and leave them by themselves he brings them into a family you, know, you can't have an israelite that's like well god save me it doesn't matter if i gather in fellowship with others you know i'm just fine by myself just me me and god and everything's okay it's like well no if god is personally saved you he's also corporately saved you he's saved he's adopted you into a family to worship with others which builds out you know this idea of dedication and salvation uh, salvation also includes that you get to fellowship with other people that's part of it as well if you don't have that you don't have real salvation but real salvation always comes with being adopted and brought into God's family to have a fellowship meal with them, which we especially see this in chapter 3 when we have the peace offerings. You know, verse 1, now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he is going to bring near one from the herd, whether male or female, he shall bring it near without blemish before Yahweh. Now, 
this isn't to, to make people to look down on things that have blemish in life, but remember in the model, this was to show you what the sacrifice was like. The, the sacrifice that, that God is going to give to provide for them in the future is without blemish. You know, it's looking forward to Christ so that they would understand, you know, in the model, when he, when he shows up, what will he be like? He'll be without blemish. And verse five, at the end of that, you hear the same phrase echoed of, it is an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Yahweh. And then what's unique that gets echoed throughout this chapter, you see at the end of verse seven, it says if he is going to bring near a lamb, so you hear this? There's people who were far, but they're brought near. He says if he's going to bring near a lamb for his offering, then he shall bring it near before Yahweh. Hear this echoed at the end of verse 12. Then he shall bring it near before Yahweh. It's like, oh, the, this is developing. We're moving near. So now the people have gone to the altar. They've gone to the priest. And now they're having a, a fellowship meal. And from that, they're going to take a part of that meal and that offering that's going to go to Yahweh. And now you have full fellowship and that they're fellowshipping with God and one another. They're loving God and one another. And these first three sacrifices bring all of that together. It's how worship is to be carried out. One of the things that in hermeneutics, which is the art and science of how you interpret the Bible, is an interpretive principle called duck, duck, goose. Where you see certain things that match, and all of a sudden you see something that's different. And so you pay, you pay attention to the goose, and then you have to run and chase it, okay? I'm gonna show you a duck and a goose in 3.16. This is Leviticus 3.16. It says, and the priest shall offer them up and smoke on the altar as food, and here's the duck we've kept seeing, an offering by fire for a soothing aroma, and then here's the goose, all fat is Yahweh's. So it's like now we just had a thought that's been developed and maybe you don't like, you know, fat on your meat or you don't like the back strap. That's not the point. It's not about what you like. It's about what God likes ultimately. And the fat portions are shared with him. And the way that that was understood then is that these are the best parts that you can possibly give. You know, this is the same word that was used of Abel when he gave the best of the firstborn of his flock. You know, he gave of, of the fat. You know, fat is... Uh, a word that's used throughout the Hebrew Bible to convey the best, you know, the, the richest. And he says all, all of that is Yahweh's. He, he owns everything. Uh, he's, he's sovereign over these things and he, ha he has a right to it. And we want to give that to him because we're thankful to him. We want to give him the best piece. So now you see the, the courtyard functions like a big table where everybody's eating together. Everybody's participating, everybody's sharing together and enjoying this relationship of people to, to priest and Yahweh over all of it. So the peace offering shows we have peace with God and we have peace with one another and we want to celebrate that, which is building out this idea of Holiness through these sacrifices. It's like, well, what is holiness? 
Holiness is total dedication to God in everything in life. You want to dedicate everything to him because he's delivered you. And the way that you give thanks, which is part of holiness, you want to give thanks to him for his provision. But what you're bringing is what he has given you. You're just giving him a part of what he has given you because you recognize it's, it's from his hand and you want a way to say, to say thank you, but it includes other people because he's not only been gracious to you and you want other people to join and say, yeah, the, our God is gracious and he has given us many gifts to be grateful for together. We also see that holiness is a real relationship it's a relationship where you're dedicated to, to loving God and to loving others. So in these first three sacrifices, we see you know, what the relationship looks like. It looks like being dedicated. It looks like giving thanks together. It looks like fellowship around the same table. But the question's still hanging in the air, how can God do that though? I mean, how can we come near, like if we tried to walk toward Mount Sinai, dead. Watch my donkey do it. Didn't even make it to the foothills, dead. But now I'm coming toward the tabernacle and I'm alive. How am I still alive right now? That's what the next two sacrifices are about. How is this possible? How does this forgiveness work? And how is this restored relationship possible? We see this in the sin offering which in verse one, you read the words, then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying. Again, now if, if we did a Yahweh's words in red, like a red letter version, uh, almost 90% of the book of Leviticus would be in red. It's a very red book. And where you have, you know, the way that it's structured is by this phrase, then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying. It's like, this is the God of creation who speaks into existence and speaks and cares for his creation and he's speaking to us right now and giving us authoritative divine instruction it's like th this is uh, amazing and it says in verse 2 you know Moses to speak to the sons of Israel saying if a person sins unintentionally and who how many of us mostly sin unintentionally versus intentionally I think a lot of times somebody points it out to you. Hey, you, you were sinning when you did this. You're like, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. <laughs> but now that you point it out, you're right. But you see that within this model. It's like, well, what do you do? The person who sins unintentionally, what do you, what do you think that that develops into how you think about life? Uh, it brings in a certain humility where you're thinking, I sin unintentionally, but God has made a way for me to, to have fellowship with him and to be brought near to him, even though... I've committed all sorts of unintentional sins that I'm not even aware of. This is similar to how our Lord taught us to pray when we say, forgive us our debts. You know, we don't list out all the specifics. It's like, well, God, forgive me of the stuff that I did wrong. I don't even know what I did yet exactly. I just know enough about myself to know that I do things like that. Please forgive me. Now, what's interesting within this model is you're not going to read, this is how you make atonement for intentional sins. What you will read is for people who commit intentional sins, uh, there, isn't, there isn't 
an offering for them within the model, at least, which is going to create a tension for a while in Scripture. It's like, I have done some sins very much on purpose. You know, what can I do about those? Which is going to, it's going to push us toward the new covenant, ultimately. It's going to push us toward, well, who, who is this seed of David who delivers us and is our representative and can give us new hearts? You know, it makes you look for that. Now, you might remember after David sinned and against God and Uriah and Bathsheba, you read one of the Psalms of his repentance in Psalm 51, and he, he, he lived under the Mosaic administration and having this model, and he says, God, there is no offering that I can give. Uh, he said, otherwise I would give it. But he says, there isn't one. There isn't one in the model. Uh, you, have to, you have to provide something that, that I can't, that, which is what the model points to. It, 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 it points to something greater that can even cover those intentional sins. You know, it shows that David was showing, he says, I know that I need the new covenant. And so he's looking forward to it. Now, within this uh, sin offering, one of the things I want you to see is in verse 3, it says, if the anointed priest sins. So you see, one, part of the weakness of this model is that the priest also needs sacrifices for himself. And, and if he sins so as to bring guilt on the people, so you see, well, whatever the priest does, it affects everybody else because he's a representative of the people, which, you know, if you just think about this little model here, you know, he said the tabernacle is Eden, but there's some things that are missing in Eden. One of them is Adam. Where's Adam? He's right here. He's the priest. He's the one who represents everybody else, just like Adam represented all of us and his actions, and we inherited his condemnation and guilt, as it talks about in Romans 5. That same idea is with the priest, but we see there's a new Adam sort of figure that can go in the tabernacle, but he's only a model of the new Adam. He actually isn't him. You know, he's still very much associated with the old man and not the new man who is to come in the future. And it says that the offering that he's to bring near to Yahweh is a bull. Now, if you look forward later, thinking about throughout this text, uh, you find that the whole congregation, if they commit an error, this is verse 13. You see now if the whole congregation commits error, and it says in verse 14, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall bring near a bull. So you see, see this connection. The priests are representatives of the people and they're equals with them. So you're seeing that the, the priest is identifying with the people. They make the same sacrifice. There's a connecting point. And verse 20, I want you to hear the gospel in verse 20 here. He says, he he shall also do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. So priest and people brought together with this bull and sin offering, thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Now, don't, don't hear that will is something that would happen right after he sacrificed the animal, but it's something that will be done in the future. 
Remember, this is just a model. It's just a, a picture. It's, a, it's, a, it's not, they will be forgiven after the animal's dead and we go through the whole thing, but they will be forgiven by what this animal represents and by what the priest is representing and showing that th there is an unblemished priest who can offer an unblemished sacrifice and people be forgiven. So you think, you know, Israel's looking forward to the cross where we look back at it. You know, they're looking forward and saying, we will be forgiven. God will satisfy justice, and he'll be just in doing it and the justifier of the ungodly. But we live on the side of Colossians 2 where we look back at the cross and see, you know, the record of our debts against God were nailed to the cross. So Israel gets a will and we get a were, but we're both looking to the cross in the middle. And this is, you know, echoed throughout this point. I mean, this, this is a good sermon from God. You know, this is God preaching to Israel in verse 26 at the end of that verse. It says, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. You think, you're hearing this message, and you think, we can really be forgiven. And like, it's really going to happen someday. And then you start to think, really? But really, though? Me? Like, he could forgive me after all that I've done. End of verse 31. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. Now, this is the main point of this point in, in the sermon. So it's like, if there's any questions, any doubts that God could forgive somebody like you, let me say it again. It says, the priest is going to make atonement, and your sins will be forgiven. It says it again at the end of verse 35. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. This is, and it continues to be echoed as you continue to read through there. And we refer to this in theology as penal substitutionary atonement is what's being pictured. You know, the penal is the, the penalty part. You know, we, we deserve to, to be punished for our sin. But with the sin offering, we're seeing something can be punished in our place, which is the substitute. God can carry out his justice on someone else instead of me, and that's how he makes things right. And he brings about atonement, which is a word that is really big because it includes your being delivered by him and your being dedicated to him. And so you see, it's explaining how God can be who he said he was and that he's forgiving but will by no means clear the guilty. It's like, well, how do you do that? He says, I'm going to provide a substitute. I'm going to carry out the just punishment, but I'm also going to make you right with me by something we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is going to be with the, the guilt offering. Ah, so this is where we're at. I got to come back to my drawing. So this is ex explains, you know, how this fellowship relationship can happen. The, with the sin offering, there's confession. Like you know that you're, a, that, that you're sinful. And there's, it explains the way of how you're restored to God, which is through penal, substitutionary atonement where the guilt offering is going to be different because you're going to say, well, he's forgiven it, but 
I don't have righteousness on my account. I don't, my status is still guilty. It's not holy. So God also, what he teaches in the guilt offering is that he makes restitution. You know, everything that was owed to God, your obedience to the Ten Commandments, you know, in this case, he also does that for you. He also pays, he not only pays the debt, but he pays the obedience, which is to be owed as well. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I have to move really quick if I'm going to talk about that. So it's answering the question of how God can justly forgive and leave and not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, we're not going to have time to look at everything that's here. This is just an overview. And it's going to be, a, we're going to take the plane way up to move through here. Within this sin offering, one of the things you'll read if you read through this another time is there's some people that they, they could bring more expensive animals, basically, and others could only, you know, they, they couldn't bring a goat or something. They only had birds, you know, turtle doves or something like that. And what's interesting when you get into Luke 2, you, Luke doesn't re-describe the point of the sacrifices again, but he just brings up when, you know, after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary brought two turtle doves. And it says, these were the poorest of the poor, but God accepts these, these, these people. And, he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't tell them, no, go get a goat. What are you doing bringing me birds? He's, well, what you see within these sacrifices that God doesn't require something that's beyond what he's provided for the worshiper. Uh, he didn't require that they, they commit more to them than they had. He, he didn't say, oh, this stuff is too ordinary. Go get me some exotic animals or something like that. Uh, the people were to sacrifice out of their normal, ordinary means. God didn't expect them or us to, to offer up something to him that we don't have, but to offer of what he has given us and to recognize God's given people more than others. And, and he's done that because he wants to display different things about his character. You know, you think about rich and poor in this example. You know, through the rich, he wants there to be an image of his generosity. Through the poor, he wants to have a, an image of there's people who have needs and he meets those needs. But he wants all of that to be imaged within his creation. He doesn't want everybody to have an equal outcome necessarily, but he wants to display things about his character through these things existing in his creation. So, you know, you think about that with fellowship mill or home fellowship group. You know, we sign up to bring stuff. Yeah, like, you know, I don't know how to make medium well ribeye. Maybe I shouldn't go. And if I don't do that, like maybe God will be mad at me and I'll lose all my friends. It's like, well, no, you know, he's like, I, I got salad. I can make a salad. Yeah. Or, or you can buy a salad kit. <laughs> it's like, just bring it. You know, it's like, you know, God's given you the power to do whatever it is that you're able to do. Just bring it in fellowship with other people. You know, maybe somebody else has the ribeye meat skills, but you have salad kit buying capabilities. You know, just use them and get together and worship the Lord and recognize, you know, God's not expecting you to do more than what he has given you. 
Yes, sir. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so what, what Sam is bringing out is it's not like, you know, rich guy can bring a goat, but the equivalent is 100 turtle doves. But rather the point is bringing your best. You know, not, not bringing an equivalent, but within the ordinary means that God has given you. You just want to give them your best because you love them. And it's like, well, what, what's my best that I'm able to bring with, within what God has provided? And, you know, if it's turtle doves, bring that. If it's a goat, uh, bring that. If it's ribeye, bring that. If it's salad kit, bring that. We also see within within the, the sin offering, there, this is kind of like uh, the in and out secret menu in, in a way, and that there's certain things that are, that are brought into, you know the, the way the in and out works. The menu just says yes or no. It's like double, double, yes or no. Like Why did you come here today if you didn't want this? Just say yes. But you know, you, you can say uh, other things, you know, flying Dutchman. This is the very meaty gluten-free option where you have the, the buns are replaced with meat patties. You're welcome for that if you didn't know about that one. Uh, the Flying Dutchman, that's what you ask for. Yeah, you probably know. Okay, we're not going to keep talking about that. Where I'm going with this, with the burnt offering, is you, you see there's like these combinations that are made with it where it's you know at uh, the altar of the burnt offering and it's offered as the peace offering. And say, you know, because the question is, well, how can this stuff be possible? It's like, well through a sin substitute that brings you to be dedicated to him and to have peace with God. That's how you can have that fellowship. So when you keep these, these things in mind and you read about that, you know, that the sin offering in includes something of the burnt offering and it's as the peace offering, it's pulling those concepts together within that. Now, when you guys think about our salvation, is it, is it enough to just be forgiven of our sins in order to be right with God. I, is it enough to just go from negative to neutral? Or does God also want us to go from neutral to positive? See, the, the worshiper, you know, kind of says, you know, we want forgiveness, but we also want the righteousness that we know that you, you demand. Uh, we want our sins to be forgiven. Like, we want to have the holy status, but we want the practice of it also, and we want the power to do it, which I have that under dedication here. You know, there's our, our holy position, that it's a practice that's lived out, and God gives the power to do that. That's all part of salvation. You know, salvation isn't just one of those things, but it's all of it included together. You get corporate fellowship, you get, you know, a holy way of living through holy means, which is God instructing you and in how to worship him, because you were made right to walk right, but your rightness doesn't come from you. It, it's alien to you, but God credits it to your account. Just like Abraham, it's a, he believed and God credited it or counted it to him as righteousness because he had faith that God would give him that righteousness and he just wanted to say, thank you that you're gonna do that. But you also see that 
it started changing who he was, that that righteousness was lived out. It wasn't just a position that we said, oh, it, you know, Abraham is righteous. He also practiced righteousness because he had trust that God would provide it and that God had given the power to live in it as well. So this teaches us that you know, our sin needs to be dealt with, but we also need something else. We need to be righteous. We need to be without blemish, which once this has happened and we have this righteous standing with God, we have peace with them. Like it talks about Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, you know, having been made right by God by trusting in his rightness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ which what, what Paul is doing is he's preaching his Bible. He's preaching Leviticus logic. He knows this is how it works. And as an Old Testament, First Testament preacher, he's explaining those things. This is important for us to know because it, it teaches us with, within the package of salvation that Jesus is better than we think that he is. That is, if you think, well, the only thing that he did was uh, he forgives our sins. It's like, no, he's better than that. He also counts you righteous. But it's even better than that. He gives you the, the power to walk in that, in that righteousness as well. Uh, he doesn't just justify you. He also sanctifies you and will glorify you. You know, see, there's so much more to salvation than just the forgiveness of sins. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see somebody who should be judged, but he sees somebody who should be loved. Now, we tend to get that backwards and think, well, I'm such a sinner and, and God should just kill me for being a dirtbag. Uh, have, have you ever read an epistle to the sinners at Philippi? You know, that epistle doesn't exist. It's to the saints. He says, this is how God sees you. He doesn't look at you and say, you people who deserve to be judged because of your sin. He's like, no, all of that was dealt with in Christ. He says, you people who deserve to be loved because you're in my family and my son bought you and I see you as I see him. That's a very sanctifying reality for us to get when you feel like a big failure because you can you kind of see your walk with God as just resetting the incident counter where you think, oh, oh, we went five days without sin, but sin today back to zero on the incident counter. Uh, well, that's really defeating because you, you just find out that the incident counter always gets something on it pretty regularly. But he says the, the way that you're to, to look at your, your growth is not by focusing on your failure, but on who God is. It's in beholding his glory and seeing that he's faithful and believing that he actually sees you as righteous, believing that he actually has made you holy and that he actually does love you. And the burnt offering teaches us that. It's that. God has made us right with him, and this is how he has done it. And you know, with the peace offering, you know, it reminds us when we think, well, I'm on rocky terms with God because well, I didn't read my four chapters yesterday and I tried to read eight today and that didn't work either. So maybe he hates me. It's like, well, no. It, it's not about you keeping up with uh, 
something, that, some, some rules that you've enforced on yourself, but you have peace with God because of Jesus, not because you could catch up on your Bible reading. And holiness is part of that package of salvation, which we're seeing here that the way and the walk are holy with God. The, the way to him, the way we worship him is holy. The walk is in holiness. Our position is holiness. Our practice is holiness. And scripture's building on this foundation and teaching us that the way that we guard our, our heart is by being in, in corporate fellowship. It's by, uh, why did you come here today? Well, because of what all of these sacrifices are teaching about. So, well, I'm, I'm dedicated to God and I wanna have fellowship with his people and I, I wanna honor him. I want to re remember the peace that I, I have with him through the sacrifice of his son. Now the guilt offering, you know, as I, m I mentioned, the thing that gets added in that, it sounds a lot like the sin offering, but it's restitution. It's that things are made right. Uh, things are made right in your relationship with God, which, you know, Jesus does that for us. And it also looks like Zacchaeus as well. You know, it's like, you know, the person that's truly repentant and has truly been, you know, saved by God, they're gonna make things right where uh, they've wronged other people. Now, as you think about this model, it's important to understand, you could think about, you know, a, a kid's Lego set. You know, it's a, it's a model, there's a castle, and maybe the kid puts you inside of the castle and they're like, the castle fell down and you're dead. Well, did you really die? You know, did you just like, right when the kid does it, you're like, Ugh! and you fall over. And it's like, well, no, yeah, I mean, you can die in the model, but not die in real life. And we see that it's just showing them something, you know, with how the sacrifices are worked, but they, they weren't reality and that their sins weren't forgiven through those animals, but they're pointing to a reality in the future. But where Israel got confused on this is where they thought, well, if I can do everything perfect in the model, then I'll be saved in life. Well, you can be perfectly fine in that castle and the kid doesn't crush you, but you can be a total failure in life. <laughs> you know, the, the model doesn't connect into to what, you know, the reality of uh, your status with God ultimately. But we want to, to recognize and understand about, you know, what happens in the model doesn't bring about salvation or necessarily uh, communicate what your actual standing with God is. It's merely meant to be instructive. Now what happens in chapter six through seven is the priest go back through, they get instructions specifically on all of the sacrifices and offerings, which connects the idea that, well, if the priest fails, then the people's worship fails because he's representing them. And the way that worship works as holy is I, I think more challenging for us as Americans to understand worship as holy because we tend to think of ourselves as having a choice, as having a say in the matter. Uh, we get to vote. I mean, doesn't the way that worship works, you know, God gets a vote, pastors get a vote, we get a vote, and then we just decide what we're going to do. Uh, what God is teaching is, no, it's holy. You don't, you don't get to vote. I just tell you the right way and the best way, and you just do it that way. Don't do it any other way which we're gonna learn something about that from Nadab and Abihu a little bit later. We don't get an option in how we become holy. You know, God gives us the best instructions on being holy and how we worship him and that our worship's to be 100% dedicated 
to him and that everything we, we do when we gather together is say, what does he want? What does God want? Uh, he wants us to you know, publicly read scripture. We do that. He wants us to pray together. We do that. He wants us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, we gather to do that. But our, our question is, like, what does God like in worship? And we, and we gather to do those things, uh, Lord's table or fellowship. And it extends far beyond that, which is we come to a close and, and we must. You can think about Israel's experience and that when they thought about fire and smoke, they thought about this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire that went before them that, that gave them instruction that consumed everything in their lives. It consumed their calendar, how they dressed, how they ate, you know, how they thought about themselves and other people and the nations. And they saw this, this fire consumes everything in life. Everything's dedicated to the God of the pillar of fire. And as they would live that out, the, the fragrance of that life, as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians 2, it was a fragrance of death to death for some. Some people would smell that sort of life, don't like it, but it was life to life for others. When we think about God being a consuming fire, it's not just that he consumes our enemies, but everything in our lives, that he consumes all of the leaven, all of the sin of our lives, and he purges it out, that his holiness must consume everything from our corporate worship all the way down to even our personal preferences and our opinions and it's the work of God's kingdom to make everything holy. So that holiness comes into us and through us until it ultimately consumes everything in existence and God's unshakable kingdom. So I want you to hear these sort of concepts that we've talked about in Leviticus as we close. I'll read you some of Hebrews 12 and 13. At the end of Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So you hear that within the sacrifices, you hear the, the logic of them. So, you know, we want to show gratitude. And we do that by offering him the sacrifices that he says are acceptable and our God is a consuming fire. The idea is he consumes everything in our lives, not just some things, but everything. He says, well, what, what are those sacrifices? Which, you know, you know this from Romans 12, that by the mercies of God, you know, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, you know, in our minds, our minds being renewed. But you see, the first thing that happens is the mercy of God. And then your life comes as a living sacrifice his mercy being the motivator. But remember we talked about, you know, it's a fellowship of loving God and loving one another. So you think acceptable sacrifices. You know, what's the next thing? And, you know, explaining the logic of sacrifices that would be given in Hebrews. Well, you have this at the very beginning in Hebrews 13. It says, let love of the brothers continue. So like, keep making frankincense pancakes. <laughs> yeah, and be okay with steak guy being steak guy and, Salad kit guy being salad kit guy. You know, just come and 
honor the Lord and don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for the sexually immoral and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money. So you kind of hear that in the, the grain offering. You know, you're content with what God has given you and to offer that. It says, being content with what you have. It's like, well, how, how can you be content? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember your leaders. You know, think about that, you know. There's a, gonna, there's a connection to priest and pastors. He's like, remember them, because when you bring the grain, you're also feeding them, and that builds up that whole idea of, you know, when, when the ox is eating and working, don't take his grain away so you can keep eating and keep working. And Paul brings that up to Timothy and helping him to understand how to, to order things in and, and the church. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You know, he's the same merciful, redeeming Savior, same sacrifices and principle. We have a different practice, same principle. When we look back in the things that were taught there, we still follow the same teaching of, you know, dedicated lives, thanksgiving, fellowship, remembrance of the sacrifice that God gave. And says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no authority to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So you think about that. He goes outside the gate to bring you in the gate into the tabernacle. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the one to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves well in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.